Migraine Canada presents Migraine Talks with Dr. Elizabeth Leroux. A podcast to learn, share, and live better. Please remember, the content of this podcast does not replace the advice of your healthcare provider. Discuss all decisions regarding your care and treatment options with your healthcare provider. Hello, my friends. I am Dr. Elizabeth Leroux, a headache neurologist in Montreal and your host for Migraine Talks. Do you have children? Do you have children or teens who will live with migraine? Well, if so, and this is the podcast for you. In today's podcast, we are privileged to chat with a headache neurologist specialized in kids and teens, Dr. Alexandra Faber. So yes, children have migraines, and yes, there are many things that can be done for them. Let's hear a short story I often hear in my office when a parent that I'm treating shares concerns about their kid. I was hoping it would not happen, but then it did. My eight-year-old is having migraines, my little boy. The other day, the school called to tell me I had to come and pick him up. He was there waiting for me, sick, pale, aching. I felt like a pang of guilt. Is this because of me? Did I give this to him? All my mother's family has migraine. I guess it was due to happen. The doctor just said to give him Tylenol, but I know it doesn't work. It did not work for me when I was his age. I made an appointment with a neurologist. Hopefully, he can tell me what to do. Dr. Alexandra Faber trained in neurology and pediatrics at the University of British Columbia. She is now a pediatrician and pediatric neurologist who is currently practicing in Vancouver at City Pediatric Specialty Group. Dr. Faber has an interest in public health. She works with passion to raise awareness about the prevention and treatment of headaches in children. Dr. Faber is a member of the Pediatric Canadian Headache Network. So good morning, uh, Dr. Faber. It's so nice of you to join us today to answer some questions about migraine in kids and teens. Thank you so much, Dr. LaRue. I'm really excited to be here today to, to talk about one of my life passions. And I think this is really excellent to get this information out to all those people who, who might appreciate it. So thank you so much for giving me this chance. Absolutely. I think there will be some parents interested in uh, learning more. So we'll get started with our Our first question, um, in the adult world, we often say that migraine is underdiagnosed. Is it your impression that it's also the case with children? Yes, I really like this question. I think that's definitely true for the pediatric population. I think in general, what we know about what we call prevalence, like how often, how common is migraine in children, um, there's a range. You know, from three to seven years old, it's reported as one to three percent. Then it starts going up from seven to 11 year olds. We're looking at four to 11 percent. And then by age 15, we're looking at numbers of more 8% to 23%. And I think these numbers are even still very much underreported. I think in pediatrics, there's so many different variables that may lead to the underdiagnosis. First of all, if you think about a really small child, they may not have the tools to even communicate that they're having a headache. Um, the other thing we know with children is that um, they don't like to stop what they're doing if they're having fun. So sometimes... Um, you know, they're suffering and they're not really um, wanting to, to you know, um, stop their activity to the point where a parent even recognizes that their child is actually having some symptoms. 
And I think the other part really um, in my pediatric population when I speak with families is that a lot of um, parents are actually quite surprised that children can even have headaches or migraines at all to begin with. So when I see them and spend time with them in my clinic, we do a lot of education and counseling about um, how to recognize the signs that a migraine is coming and what that actually means for a child who's having a headache. So I think it's really important to start getting people talking about this at a young age. Talking about uh, migraine attacks in children, uh, are there differences between uh, the attacks of adults and those in children? Yes, for sure. Um, so we also in pediatrics look at sort of the classical migraine definitions. We look towards our international classification of headache disorders for some um, specifics about that. And what we know in pediatrics compared to adults is that the migraine attack can be a little bit shorter. So we adjust our definition to two hours minimum instead of four. We know also that the location of the pain on the head can be sometimes different, whereas in pediatrics, it can sometimes be both sides of the head versus one side of the head in adults. And the other thing that's quite interesting, I think as well, uh, we know with migraine, there has to be sometimes a component potentially of light and noise sensitivity. And this is sometimes harder for children to communicate. So we recognize that parents may be able to you know, tell us a story of a child who's maybe hiding under their blankets, shying away from the light, rather than actually saying, you know, I have sensitivity to light specifically. So there are some modifications there within the actual definition itself of migraine for pediatrics. And the other thing that's quite interesting is that there's this whole sort of subset of what we call episodic syndromes that can be associated with migraines in the pediatric population where they may not even have a, a headache at all. They may present with profuse vomiting, like a cyclical vomiting syndrome or severe abdominal pain, abdominal migraine. As well, we get these other disorders which can present with vertigo or even a tilted neck, which we call torticollis. And these are all potentially um, migraine episodic syndromes that start at even a very, very young age that can um, be associated with classical migraine later on. So there are some other things to kind of consider when we're looking at the definition of a migraine as well. So it looks like uh, even in adults, the symptoms of migraine can be very diverse. And in children, there's even specific things we see uh, mostly in, in kids with uh, what you mentioned about the abdominal pain, vertigo, and, and cyclical vomiting. So let's say that you, you meet you know, with a, a young child Um, how do you manage a questionnaire? You know, you mentioned that it's difficult for children to, to uh, describe their symptoms. So how do you manage that in your clinic? Yeah, I think, um, you know, through a lot of um, training during residency, we, especially in pediatrics, we learn how to communicate with children. And I think one thing that is just so important about this pediatric headache story is that we get as much information as we can from the child. And I think that's something that I really um, put a lot of um, effort and attention into. And actually, I think the parents really appreciate that as well, because they often learn something new about what their child is experiencing about their headache. For example, um, like a visual change or a visual aura, we call that. Um, sometimes a child can draw that for me in my clinic, and uh, the parent never even knew that that was happening, for example. So, um, of course, it's also hard um, for children to use maybe the same kind of um, language that we understand um, in the headaches. So we have to modify things again. Uh, a child might not say that their head is pulsing, let's say, but for example, we can use other um, things that they might understand like, oh, uh, maybe this sounds like a drum that's beating in your head in and out. Um, so we can kind of change how we characterize and um, 
try to use our imagination a little bit more when we're gathering information. And I think um, visual pictures are great too. Um, people use different kind of pain scoring systems in children where they show them different kind of faces and expressions of how someone may be feeling um, to represent, you know, like a one out of 10 or a 10 out of 10. Um, so those are also great. Um, there's pictures where children can draw on their head where it hurts. Um, so some children, you know, are a little bit more tactile. Some children are more visual. Some children, even at a young age, have amazing language and can tell me more than I need to need to or, or want to know during a, a consultation. So I think we have to give them a lot of credit um, and really trust that what they're saying is true and then try to use our, our, our techniques and our tools to get, you know, collaborative information from the family about things that they can't describe um, because the parents, of course, are also very good observers and, and really know their children well. So it's kind of a combined effort. So it looks like you have a lot of uh skills and techniques that can assist you in eliciting the symptoms and making a, a confident diagnosis. So now that you've done the, let's say you've done the diagnosis and, and you see that there's an impact on the life of the child and of course uh, the whole family usually, um, we, we always start uh, migraine management with some lifestyle adaptations. So what would be your kind of top five recommendations that you can uh, advise the parents to put in place that could make actually a difference? Yeah, I think this is such an important question um, in migraine management in general, but in pediatrics especially, because there is a lot of limitations in some of the medications and pharmacological um, um, uses that we have that have actually been shown to be um, proven effective in the pediatric population. So, but lifestyle um, and headache prevention strategies, there is a lot of data there and support to back that up. So we really focus a lot of our consultation on counseling and lifestyle management. I think if I have to pick sort of the top five things, that's always the, the hardest thing it's to difficult. do, the hardest question, because there's so many things that are good. I think, um, you know, one thing is um, the idea about regular um, schedules. So we know that even in um, adults, some sort of changes in baseline schedules can trigger headaches. And I think this is true for children as well. So we, we like uh, routines. We know that a lot of children's routines, when they're disrupted, it can cause um, other problems to happen in their life, not just headaches, um, and that can cause more stress in general. And we know, of course, stress can set off headaches. So regular schedules and routines are really important for children as well. And uh, one of those um, um, schedules includes sleep hygiene. So sleep hygiene um, is also really important. And I think there's two parts of that. One is sort of getting enough sleep, but also getting that regular sleep. Um, and parents are always asking me, you know, how much sleep is my child supposed to have? Yeah. And I mean, there are tables and numbers, which I'm happy to, to share. But, you know, in general, I think if you, if you feel that your child is looking tired, obviously, you know, it's not enough. And I think that regularity is important. So, you know, children, um, especially teenagers, even adults will alter their sleep cycles, um, you know, during the week versus a weekend. So we try yes. to, to not do that because it promotes better consolidated regular sleep. I think the other thing that's really important um, as another lifestyle variable is exercise. So there has been some studies in pediatrics which show that um, low physical exercise is associated with an increase in headache frequency. And I think with um, you know, advances in technology, which have been wonderful for society, um, you know, there has been a lot more screen time that has, ma has maybe contributed to inactivity. COVID, oh my gosh, this has been so terrible for inactivity and more screen time. And I think that, um, you know, making sure that kids are staying active is really important just for their general health. 
um, but is definitely been shown to be uh, regularly associated with headaches as well. So we, we spend a lot of time working on that, discussing that. Um, I think the other variables with screen time is an increase in kind of neck and, and shoulder sort of tension from the posture that kids um, take on when they're on their screen. So, you know, these two things are sort of connected together. Um, the other thing is really about nutrition and food. So again, um, with regularity, we're talking about regular intake, avoiding skipping meals. Um, this is, gets more important for those adolescent patients who like to sleep in and skip breakfast, um, staying hydrated, avoiding caffeine. I think a lot of families are shocked to learn that, you know, Coca-Cola and iced tea are caffeine products. And so when I ask about caffeine, they laugh and they say, what? My, my child doesn't drink coffee. But I'm, I sort of have to explain, no, I know it's not coffee, but, you know, there, you know there's even, you know, caffeine hidden in chocolate, for example. So we, we talk about, um, you know, some of the ways that we can avoid caffeine as well as other uh, nutritional components that are definitely important. Um, and I think the final thing um, is really learning about um, pain coping strategies and, and screening for things like mental health issues. Um, we, we know that in children, especially, there is a very strong relationship between the mind and body. And I think doing daily uh, relaxation, breathing, meditation, um, learning about activity pacing um, is really important um, in headache prevention, as well as headache treatment in children. So this is another big focus of our of our counseling and lifestyle for sure. Thank you for that. So I'm in the adult world and this this looks a lot like what we do for adults, but I guess you have to adapt to children. And uh, you're so right about the caffeine. I remember being taught that by some of my pediatric colleagues that sometimes we we, we cannot perceive that our children and teens are drinking caffeine, but they, they definitely are. So another thing that comes with the counseling is usually headache diaries. And uh, you, you explained to us how you elicit the, the story of migraine and the symptoms, but do you use headache diaries with kids and, and teenagers? Yeah, we do. And I think, you know, diaries, um, some people have sort of a love-hate relationship with them, you know. Um, they can be really great, I think, initially for helping families to understand a lot about their own headache story. And I think that's a big part of management is sort of catering an individualized program for a family or a child. And so they have to really understand about their headaches in order to cater an individualized plan. And I think keeping a diary sort of forces people to explore um, what is actually happening with their headache and maybe also start to recognize some of those early warning bells of what might be either setting off the headache or when a headache is about to start. And that really helps us with getting in early treatment, which is also really important for management. So I think headache diaries are great. Um, I sort of say to families, you know, whichever way it makes sense for you to write it down, um, at least for the first consultation is, is, is a start, right, in, in terms of gathering information and this understanding process. But yes, there are some, you know, validated studies that are great um, for pediatrics. Um, as I said earlier, they're usually ones that have, you know, pictures of um, things where they can draw in where their headache hurts or scale scales that have these faces on them to, to allow for, for families in the moment to kind of say, like, what is your, where is your pain at? Um, and um, so we use, I use a lot of the Boston Children's Hospital headache diary. Um, you know, some of our adult uh, and pediatric headache colleagues uh, talked about the traffic light of headaches. And I think that that actually works really well for pediatrics as well in terms of uh, some of the more chronic um, headache uh, patients that I have. 
um, looking at it as a stoplight analogy where a red light day is, you know, a really bad headache day where they have pain and they can't do anything. You know, a yellow light day is maybe a day where they can do a little bit, but not as much. And a green light day is still a headache day, but it doesn't kind of affect their function. So for some patients, uh, we can work with these sort of functional pain scales rather than, you know, a specific number in an every day-to-day -day, uh, management plan. Um, but it has to be the right kind of a patient or the right age that might understand those things and concepts. Um, and then, of course, we have our Canadian Migraine Tracker app, <laughs> which you're very well aware of, which I've been promoting a lot amongst my uh, families. And I've had a lot of positive feedback about um, using those apps together, like with their parents, for example, if they're young, or just for the moms and dads to kind of, again, have something to use to actually track. It, it's, it's really, really helpful to have different ways to do that. So let's talk about medications because I, uh, I see, I treat the moms, right? I see the adults and very often a mom will come to me and say, well, thank you so much. I mean, for all you do for the headaches and I found some options, but my child has migraines and it looks like his doctor doesn't want to prescribe anything because he's or she's, you know, like 12 year old or less, or even in teens sometimes. So physicians are reluctant to prescribe medications to, to children. Um, but let's say, and we all know that there's a lot we can do to kind of soothe an attack and with non-drug approaches, which is great. But if the migraine attacks are not relieved and still have an impact, what, what are there options for children and teens? I think this is a great question. And I think um, really, um, it's again, a lot about education, education of families, education of um, physicians that are looking after children with migraine, that there are more options available now. Um, and every day, every week, every month, every year, things are increasing in terms of um, exciting information and knowledge that we have, um, not only about adult migraine care, but also pediatric care. Um, and I think the first thing really that I um, review very carefully with my patients when they tell me, you know, Advil never worked or Tylenol never worked is, you know, tell me a little bit about, first of all, how you took it and what dose mm -hmm. you took. And I think that there is a lot of underdosing of um, pediatric migraine and also a bit of a reluctance to treat the migraine attack right away because of, you know, maybe a fear potentially about even taking um, over-the-counter medications or, you know, is it necessary to give children medicine at all, um, which I can understand, you know, even as a parent myself, you know, you're worried you don't want to cause harm to your child giving the medication. So we spend a lot of time actually I'm trying to figure out, first of all, if over-the-counter medicines actually really failed and, mm. um, and trying to optimize those. And sometimes that's really enough to make it work. Um, so we do have some guidelines about how to give medications even over-the-counter, um, which we can talk about in more detail. But taking medicine really early is important. Taking the right dose, having a safe place to kind of rest quietly, drink some water and relax for you know maybe half an hour to an hour. And then trying to feel better within that one to two hour mark and be able to maybe, you know, stay in their activity or stay at school. These are really the goals of care for pediatrics as well as adults with migraine. Um, when we look at other options, you know, we don't have any studies to necessarily even um, show that over the counter should be the first thing that we offer compared to prescription medications. We don't have those studies. But of course, you know, the accessibility, the availability, even the affordability of over-the-counter options definitely make it the, the right choice to start off with first, okay, for most families. Um, in terms of prescription medicines, we talk about our migraine-specific medications as being triptans. 
in children as well. We have some prescription options to try to help with um, nausea and vomiting that happen with migraine, where some of the um, headache medications don't always work that well to control those other variables. So we have those options. Um, in terms of resources and supports for physicians, there are guidelines and new, new updated guidelines that have been published through the American Academy of Neuro Neurology um, about um, the pharmacological treatment of migraines in children. So um, in Canada, um, I think the struggle is that Health Canada doesn't, uh, hasn't approved necessarily all mm. of the, the triptans that are actually approved by the American FDA or even the European uh, Medical Association. Um, I think what's really important message to get out there is that triptans are safe. We do have studies where kids have taken triptans and we haven't, we haven't seen any serious adverse effects from them. Um, so the first thing always is to make sure it's safe. I think the second thing is that there have been some positive studies which have led to approval. And that has um, been um, shown for um, uh, children down to as young as six years of age. Wow. Uh, with Rizotriptan is FDA approved for six years of age and older. Um, we have um, Zolmatriptan nasal spray, which has approval for um, 12 years of age and older in, from the FDA as well. Um, in Canada, we only have Elmotriptan, which has oral, it's an oral medication for 12 years of age and older. Um, through the FDA, there's also um, Treximet, which is a combination tablet of Sumatriptan and Naproxen, which is now um, available as Suvex in Canada, but doesn't have the Health Canada approval, but in the FDA has approval for 12 years of age and older. Um, and then we also have in Europe, um, Sumatriptan nasal spray, 10 milligrams, which has 12 years of age and older approval. So there are some uh, medications that have an approval. Um, the other triptans, which are available in Canada have, I guess, safety information for children. So usually I would start with one of those options that I just listed, um, kind of prescribing it off-label from Health Canada, but with the understanding that we have safety data and some um, studies that have, you know, um, given us some reassurance to, to be able to use these medications in children safely, that um, we really need to get that message out there. Um, a lot of the families that I look after, um, the parents are also not aware that triptans <laughs> exist for migraines. Yep. And so I'm giving them lots of information as well to go and take to their health care provider to tell to tell them to try some of these things as well. Um, <laughs> so I think that, you know, it's really about family counseling and information. I think a lot of the families I look after, um, some of the parents um, also are migraine sufferers, as you mentioned too, Dr. LaRue. And um, they actually are so um, thankful that their children are, are having these conversations and tools um, available to them at a young age. Um, so that they don't have to necessarily suffer as much as they did when they were younger and nobody really, um, you know, as they quote, kind of did anything for them at that time. I think there's more that we can do now. And I think that's really the message that needs to get out there, uh, which is great news actually for, for pediatric headache sufferers. Yeah. So what I hear is that there's a lot of education to do and it's, it goes yeah. both sides. It looks like you, you are also educating the parents of the the children and sometimes referring um, even uh, the families to resources and telling them, well, maybe you can just mention to your GP that there are there's information out there for you. There are guidelines. And yes, it's safe. We always have this fear, right? But sometimes it's just not warranted. So now you have found, let's say, a treatment plan and, and say a triptan works or a medication works. Um, but sometimes there are school regulations that 
the the children cannot or the teens cannot necessarily have their pills. So is there anything that you can suggest for the management of medication intake at school? Yes, I, I really um, appreciate this conversation as well. I think this is a big part of, again, educating um, families, um, educating the patients to really be able to um, take their migraine management into their own hands wherever they are. It shouldn't matter if they're at school or if they're at home or with their, if they're with a friend or if they're being looked after by their grandparents. They should always have a clear plan. So again, um, we talk about recognizing the signs um, of when your migraine attack is going to come on and telling kids that, you know, this could happen at school. And, and even they tell me the, the, the migraine often starts at school. The, the mom or dad tells me they pick them up from school. They look, they look awful by that time. They mm. try medication, but it doesn't really work. So going back again to the, the early treatment and what the options are for them to be treated with, um, each person needs this individualized action plan for their headaches, no matter where they are. And I sort of explained it to them. It's, it's kind of like an asthma attack. You know, if you're out somewhere <laughs> and you couldn't breathe, um, you're going to take your Ventolin right away to help you breathe. And you're not just going to let it sit and wait until it gets really bad that you end up, you know, going to the hospital because you can't breathe. You've got to just get on it right away, no matter where you are. And um, Sometimes I do need to send a letter to the school mm. um, with the with the specific medication plan outlined. Um, sometimes schools actually have been really progressive lately and don't require me to send a letter. Um, sometimes it depends on whether they're in elementary school or if they're in high school, whether or not they're actually allowed to carry medication on them. So different schools have different regulations about that. So we, we sort of have to discuss that as being an important part of their management plan and figure out um, what are the rules for their school? So I tell the parents, I tell the child, talk to your teacher, make sure that they know that you have a diagnosis of migraine, figure out what the rules are for your school. I'm happy to send a letter with whatever it is that we need to say um, to make sure that this can happen for you. And then, um, and then it doesn't become a problem. But um, a lot of families, they don't even realize that their children may be allowed to have medication at school. So, so these are all the barriers that we're sort of trying to break down um, with every patient that we, that we manage with pediatric migraine. And just like I imagine in adults when they're going to work, having some sort of backup plan for when they're in the office, um, it's the same for pediatrics. Um, and um, I think the other thing that's really important, though, as well, is giving the children enough confidence mm -hmm. and, and understanding to actually tell their teacher um, that they can um, do this and, and making sure that they are not penalized for leaving the classroom because they have to go get their medication. And I have a lot of very diligent students that I look after who, who do have these fears. Um, you know, as well as being singled out, maybe because they have a water bottle on their desk that they're supposed to be drinking water and hydrating. Um, you know, I think that there needs to be some modifications in the classroom, just like we may think about modifications in the workspace um, when when children have migraines. So um, uh, going back to some of those lifestyle things that we talked about earlier, um, these things also apply to the school environment as well as the home environment. So sometimes my letter will include things like that. Um, this child should be able to have a water bottle at their desk. They should be able to leave the classroom for a few minutes to get their medication, have a few minutes of downtime to rest or do their breathing, meditation, relaxation exercises, um, whatever it is that we need to, to kind of clearly lay out to the school. I've never really had a school come back to me and say, no, you can't do this. Um, but it's more just kind of making sure that the plan is there. I think the schools are very supportive um, when they know that there's a diagnosis there and that they know that there's 
you know, some things that they need to be doing in their classroom. I think most teachers um, are recognizing maybe they have migraines themselves, so they understand. Um, so I, I find the school environment very supportive, um, but we need to put the education there so that the communication is there and that the plan is there and that the confidence is there for the child to really be able to carry out that plan. I think those are the key factors really about the schools. Thank you. I find it very reassuring to hear that the schools are open and overall it's all a matter of planning and putting things in place and, and reassuring everybody, but it looks like uh, uh, things can be done and, and they can work. So we, we will finish this interview. So today we'll not talk about prevention and chronic headaches. We might do a separate podcast about this because I know it's also a matter of concern to parents, you know, when the, the headaches are very frequent, but we'll address that separately. So the last question for this interview is about, I, I deal with parents and once again, and they are often very concerned about what's going to happen with, to my kid, you know, is it going to stay, is it going to, re, to, to deteriorate? Um, and so what do we know about the prognosis of migraine when it starts in childhood? Yeah, this is also a very great question. And I think um, there have been some uh, really long uh, follow-up studies for pediatric migraine. I was discussing this with one of my colleagues and she um, sent me to a paper that um, went right up to 50 years of age in terms of follow-up data. So that was incredible. I think as a general overall kind of blanket statement, um, about 50% of children who have migraine will, will continue to have um, migraine long-term. Um, about 25% will continue to have headaches, but it may transition to like a, a less severe phenotype or different types of headache disorders, like tension type headaches. And about 25% will actually remit. Um, and this is more likely to happen in, um, um, in um, male gender um, in terms of remission if it starts off in the in pediatric um, age group. Yeah. Yeah, we know that migraine affects more women, especially after the puberty hits and mm -hmm. the menstrual cycles kick in. So it, it's very interesting to hear that actually some remit and it doesn't mm -hmm. mean that the migraine will be there. But for what I heard from this whole interview and all your great advice is that even if you live with migraine, there are tons of things that can be done uh, with medications and without medications mm -hmm. and just information and, and feeling that you know what to do, you know, to recognize your symptoms and you're sure you get the support of your family, your network, your school, your workplace. So that's really what we promote here at Migraine Canada is information and making yeah. sure that, you know, whatever you live with, um, because migraine can be extremely disabling, but whatever you live with, you can find options. And I'm very grateful to you for providing yeah. your insights. Um, and I think that's like a really big part of, um, you know, the things that we talk about with our patients is giving them those tools. I tell them, you know, this information that you learn today and the time that we have together is really for your life, um, you know, and if at any point, you know, we get disconnected from each other because you're no longer pediatric, um, <laughs> you know, go back to this stuff that we've talked about, these handouts that I've given you, these options that you have and revisit them later on with your healthcare provider. So, you know, the knowledge is being transferred through the patients now and we're giving them the tools to really, you know, advocate for themselves at a young age. Um, and again, going back to these um, mothers and fathers who tell me that they wish they had this information when they were a child, I feel that we're really doing our part to, to kind of, you know, take away that now, you know, have more information for a young person who may have, have migraines, as you said, as an adult, but now can maybe manage them in a way that, you know, makes sense and figure that out at a young age, what works, what doesn't work, what their triggers are and start learning about it. It's really uh, a great, a great feeling for everyone. 
Yeah. yeah, better better start early and build confidence. I think we're very far far from the age where uh, migraine was completely discarded and was just like, oh no, you don't want to go to school and it's nothing. So I think there's definitely improvement. So Dr. Alexandra Faber, I really want to thank you for a wonderful interview, a lot of information. More can be found on our website. And I look forward to invite you for future podcasts on migraine uh, in children and teens. Thank you. Thank you so much. My friends, all my thoughts go to the parents out there taking care of little ones or tweens or big teens. Uh, discussing with Dr. Faber reminded me that the basic principle of migraine management are the same for young ones and for adults. There's really an art though um, to discussing with children and their parents and adapting treatments to them. If you'd like to get access to some more tools, go on our website at migrainecanada.org and look into resources looking for the kids and teens tab. We provide letter templates for school, summary of medications recommended you can bring to your GP, and basic information on migraine for children. Also look at the children root of the migraine tree, where you will find more information about um, episodic syndromes in kids and also more migraine information. So I really hope that this podcast was interesting and useful for you and for your little one. And until our next podcast, well, be well. Migraine Canada is a not-for-profit organization. We improve the lives of Canadians affected by migraine and other headache disorders through awareness, support, education, advocacy, and research. This podcast does not replace a medical advice. Always consult your treating healthcare provider to make any medical decision. If you enjoyed the content of this podcast, listen to the 11 others from our 2021 series, available on your favorite platform. Remember that you'll find plenty of additional information on MigraineCanada.org. Is there a topic you'd like to hear about in the future? If you have suggestions or feel like sharing your thoughts, please email us at info at migrainecanada.org and don't forget to check our website. We'd love to hear from you.